Welcome to the Keeping It Israel podcast with Jeff Futers, where Jeff and his guests talk everything Israel as it relates to Christian faith and the church. If you are a Christian and you stand with Israel, you will be encouraged and challenged by this podcast. And if you're not so sure about the whole Israel thing, you need to learn how your faith connects with Israel and why standing with Israel matters. Now here's Jeff with today's guest. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Jeff and I'll be your host. I'm also the director of First Century Foundations, a ministry that is helping many ministries and organizations in the land of Israel. We are in the middle of doing something a little different, sharing some teaching that I did on the I Am Statements of Jesus. And today we're going to be looking at Jesus' statement, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. And what does that mean when we look at it from a Hebrew context or the context of Judaism and Hebraic roots. I think you're going to learn something today. I hope you enjoy this message. So let's uh, listen in. All right. So we're talking about the I am statements of Jesus. And uh, let me just pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you that God, there is an anointing on your word already. But we pray that Lord, as we share your word, that you would you would open our hearts, that you would illuminate your word to us by your Holy Spirit. God, as we look at it together, thank you for Jesus who came, who is our Savior, our Messiah, the one who delivered us from sin, and God who gives us eternal life through through his death and resurrection. We thank you today. We pray you'd speak to us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So yesterday we talked about why that phrase I am is important, because who said he's I am? God, God the Father said, I am that I am. You can tell them that's my name. Jesus later in the New Testament says, before Abraham was, I am. And then he begins to make these statements. And yesterday we talked about the bread of life. Today, we're going to jump right in and talk about this phrase, I am the light of the world. And so if you have your Bibles, John chapter 8, John chapter 8 and verse 12. It's just one verse, but we will uh, ask you to keep your Bibles open. We'll be looking at a number of verses uh, together today. But here's what it says in verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, remember, we are looking at this from these three different perspectives. We're going to talk about the context, what's going on, what's happening in the background, uh, and then some clarification right? How, uh, how do we understand what Jesus is saying? Why does he use the language he's using? What's important about that? And then we're going to talk about a call to action before we're done today. Uh, I am the light of the world. And so first we are uh, looking together at context and uh, we follow the story here in the early part of chapter eight. Now, as you, as you look at the story, I want you to sort of catch a couple of things. In, in John 8, 12, it follows this story, first of all, uh, the, the preceding verses of a woman caught in adultery. And there's a, a famous happening here where Jesus, you know, stoops down and he writes in the sand. Has that story ever intrigued you at all? Yeah, it's a little bit intriguing. We don't know what he wrote. We have no idea what's going on here uh, in many ways. But I want to I want to look at that just briefly. But you'll note in your Bible, there's a disclaimer of sorts at the beginning of John chapter 8 or actually the end of John 7, says, you know, that the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7.53 to John 8. 
uh, and sort of 1 to 11. Has that ever, that ever troubled you at all? Yeah, don't, be, don't be troubled by it, and uh, I'll tell you why in just a second. So, but if we're talking context here, in order to be as accurate as possible, we would look at what is happening in chapter 7 to sort of determine what the overall context is. But, but before I get there, I do want to look at this story of the woman caught in adultery very quickly because there's something really cool here out of, out of the Hebraic roots that, we, that will help us understand what's going on. My personal view is this, that even if this short text cannot be uh, you know, corroborated in the earliest manuscripts, Set that aside for a moment. It is consistent. It's a story that's consistent with the theme of God's incredible grace in Scripture, as well as consistent with the tenuous relationship that Jesus had with the Pharisees in the New Testament. And so I personally don't feel that it's all that damaging for us to consider it as part of the text. Most scholars agree that it is likely an eyewitness account of a story that did happen to Jesus. The debate really is mostly around whether it should be credited to John's gospel or maybe to Luke's gospel, and also the question of kind of where in the narrative it should fall, okay? But let me point out this one thing from a Hebraic context. This story does seem to fit with John 7 because of the fact that it follows Jesus' claim on the last and greatest day of the feast. So we're going to go to John 7 for just a second, John 7, 37 to 38, and the context is the Feast of Tabernacles. And here's what happens at the Feast of Tabernacles. We're going to get into the whole feast a little bit more in just a moment. But Jesus, it says, stands up on the last and the, the last and greatest day of the festival. And he says in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Now, it's important to understand something about this. There's a tradition that is part of the Feast of Tabernacles. That's what's, what's happening here, the Feast of Tabernacles, that would have been happening right at this time. Jesus' words about, about living water come from the tradition of what they call the, the water libation ceremony. Water libation ceremony. Every day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the priest would lead a procession down to the Pool of Siloam. And uh, if you can see this picture here, this essentially is the Temple Mount. This down in this corner here is the Pool of Siloam. And, and you can see the roadway, the steps that ascend up to the Temple Mount. When it talks in Scripture about going up to Jerusalem, ascending to Jerusalem, it's about elevation because Jerusalem is one of the, the higher elevations in the land of Israel, but it's also about ascending to the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount was at the top of the ancient Jebusite city on the threshing floor of Aruna. If you remember that story where David goes and he, and he, and he, buys, he buys that place, okay? So this is what's happening. The priest would lead a procession from the temple here all the way down to the Pool of Siloam. And then they would take a special, a special container and fill it with water. And uh, all the while, you know, singing or, or reciting the passage from Isaiah that talks about drawing water from the wells of salvation. That's what's happening here. That's the ceremony that's going on. And so they would get the water and then make their way all the way back up to the temple. And when they got back up to the temple there, Jesus stands up. And he waits for his moment. It's the last day. They do it every day. 
but he waits for the last day because, you know, the suspense, the suspense kind of builds, the, the anticipation builds over these days of the feasts. And so that's essentially what's, what's happening here. The water from the Pool of Siloam comes from the Gihon Spring, and this is a, a picture of the Pool of Siloam today. Now, we can only see one side of it. You can sort of see the steps up there to the right. The water's kind of down at the left-hand side of, that, of the picture. Uh, we can't see the whole pool because the next-door neighbor uh, is Arab, and they're having a real hard time buying the land from him because they, they would love to excavate the rest of it because they know that the rest of the, the ruins of the pool is, is underneath there. But anyway, it's one of those tensions that we live in in the land of Israel right now today. So this is what's happening. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And so Jesus waits for his moment and says in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, come to me, come to me and drink. Now, these words sparked a debate again among those at the feast. Verse 40, it says, surely this man is the prophet. Remember we talked yesterday about the prophet, the one that Moses said would come, the second Moses. And so others said, how could he be? How could he be the Messiah? You know, can anything good come from Galilee? We have that phrase that comes up in the New Testament. Doesn't the scripture say he'll come from Bethlehem? Maybe they didn't know that that's where he was born. And they're divided and there's some debate. Some reject him as the living water. And the Pharisees in particular are extremely divided about this, up in arms about all of this. And then we find in the very next section that's in your Bible, we have the story of the woman caught in adultery. Here's why it fits here, why I believe it fits here. The priests, the Pharisees, they come, they bring this woman who's caught in adultery. I don't have time to get into this whole story. You've all wondered, where's the man, right? I mean, that's, that's probably our biggest question, but they, they throw her at Jesus' feet and say, you know, we're supposed to, the, the law says we should stone her. You know, what do you say? And Jesus doesn't, doesn't answer them right away. He just stoops down and he begins to write in the dust. And then he gets up and he says, look, if anyone is without sin, if you don't have any sin, then you go ahead, by all means, cast the first stone. And then he gets down and he writes in the sand again. And this is very significant in light of a prophecy in the book of Jeremiah. Remember, Jesus has just declared himself on the last and greatest day of the feast to be living water. By the way, they call it living water. They will only use what they call living water for, uh, for ritual bathing, for these kinds of ceremonies, this libation ceremony. It has to be living water. And living water, in their definition in, in Jewish culture, is water that, that either bubbles up from the earth, spring, or water that, that falls from the sky, rainwater, because they believe that the source of those is, you know, is directly God. And so Jesus says, I'm living water. And the Pharisees, the teachers who have argued about this, they say Jesus can't be the prophet. Those who have background in Hebrew Bible, in Scripture, they would, they would know these prophecies that I'm going to, uh, to tell you about right now. They were quoting the law of Moses to Jesus, saying that it commanded them to stone such women. And so this is what they're standing on. It's, it's the law and the prophets. It says we should, we should stone her. And then Jesus gets down and he writes in the dust. So here's the verse, Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 3. Jeremiah prophesies, he says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel and all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be what? Written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. I get a chill every time I read that. 
Because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of the living water. So we have Jesus who declares himself to be living water. We've got the, the Pharisees and the priests who say he's not the prophet. He's not the one. He can't be living water. Then they bring him this woman caught in adultery and he gets down and he writes in the dust. And Jeremiah prophesies, by the Spirit of God, those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord of the spring of, uh, forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Isn't that cool? I think that's cool. Okay, let's carry on. You ever wondered why in verse 9, you know, they all of a sudden began to, to drop their stones and go away? I think it was uh, about then that it dawned on them what Jesus was getting at. He had told them he was the living water, but they rejected that. Now he's writing their names in the dust. And so if you're someone who writes in the margin of your Bible, put beside Jeremiah 17 and 3, Jesus writing in the sand, John chapter 8, verse 6. Okay, back to the context. Let's uh, go on with the text we want to look at together. So I told you what's happening here is the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles. This feast is one of the Lord's feasts, okay? Leviticus chapter 23. How many of you, uh, you know, refer to the feasts as, as Jewish feasts? You can be honest about that. Sure we do. We, we, say they're the, we say they're the Jewish feast because they come from Judaism. They come from Jewish tradition. But what does the Bible say they are? The Bible says they are the Lord's feast. They are, they are God's feasts. And so I'm not here to tell you that we should all, uh, you know, practice the Jewish feast, but I'm here to say maybe we should consider the fact that there's some deep meaning in these because of the fact that God says they are my feasts and we should, we should learn more about them, I, I believe, okay? Feast of Tabernacles, Leviticus chapter 23. And uh, let me just give you a brief overview here. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites on the 15th day of the seventh month, the Lord's Feast of Tabernacles, there it is, begins. And it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. For seven days present offerings made to the Lord by fire. And on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. It's the closing assembly do no regular work. And then it goes down again, verse 39. So beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you've gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. First day is a day of rest and so on and so forth. And then it says something interesting. You're to take choice fruit from the trees and palm fronds, leafy branches and poplars and rejoice before the Lord your God. Celebrate this as a festival. And then if you go a little further, it says, uh, in verse 42, live in booths for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in booths so that your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths or huts or temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so this is the, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. The Hebrew name is Sukkot. It happens on the seventh, in the seventh month of the Hebrew year, the 15th to the 22nd of the month of Tishri, because the Hebrew calendar is, is different from our calendar. And, uh, and it happens after the harvest. And so God says, I want you to live in temporary huts for seven days. And he wants them to do that because he wants them to remember that he brought them out of Egypt and that he got them through the wilderness. He got them through the, the desert wanderings. And they are to commemorate that. And it's supposed to be a day of rejoicing, uh, days of celebration, days of sacrifice by fire, and so on. So that's what's happening here in the background. It's also significant because it reminds them not only that God was with them, but that God is with them as well. Uh, Jewish tradition says that they're supposed to make the roof of this temporary shelter with, with uh, 
sort of leafy branches, but you should be able to see up through to the stars. And, and the reason is uh, they also want to, to understand God's faithfulness in the present day. So God was with them. He is with them. And there's also an, an apocalyptic element to this feast as well, that God will uh, one day tabernacle with us again. Okay? Interesting when you think about John's language. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was was God and the Word was with God and it says that He came and He made His dwelling or He tabernacled among us. That's what Messiah did. And so the, the Jewish people are, are still looking forward to Messiah. They didn't recognize Him the first time He came, but He will come again and tabernacle Himself again with men. So that's what the Feast of Tabernacles is about. Am I going too fast? Okay. So, uh, we're going to then move here to, to some clarification. Why did Jesus use the language light of the world? Why did he use this language? Well, Second uh, Chronicles 7 and 1 to 3, we have the record of the, the dedication of Solomon's first temple. And I'm, I'm going to read this to you because a tradition develops out of this happening, a Jewish tradition. If you go back and you read uh, the, the Mishnah, you understand what the rabbis teach about the Feast of Tabernacles. They developed a tradition out of this happening. So here's what it says. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. And when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, he is good and his love endures forever. The tradition that develops from this amazing, amazing sight at the dedication of the first temple of Solomon, they, they say, those who were there who sort of wrote down uh, the, the, the things that happened, that when the fire, when the glory of the Lord fell, there was nothing inside of the temple that had been lit yet. None of the, none of the candles had been lit. None, the altar had not yet been. And when the fire, when the glory of God fell, they say that it lit everything in the temple and everything was illuminated. That's the story. We don't have it in Scripture in that detail. It says the glory fell. It says the fire came. But the Jewish tradition tells us that everything was lit up in that moment. And because of this momentous happening at the dedication of Solomon's temple, they celebrate this every year as a part of the water libation ceremony that we just talked about. There's an element that's added to illuminate, to light up the water libation ceremony in order to also celebrate and remember this fire that came from heaven and the glory of God that filled the temple. And so this is what they did. They took huge, huge lamps, menorahs, four of them, and they put them up in what's called the women's court of the temple. Now, the women's court wasn't only for women, ironically. It was one of the areas outside the temple where anybody where anybody could come. And so they put up these great big menorahs. Some estimate that they were as high as 70 feet tall, but no matter really how tall they were, we know they were very large. And each of them had their own container of oil mounted on them. And four of the young priests in training were assigned to come and to fill the lamps each day by climbing up four different ladders and carrying these great jugs of oil to the fuel lamps. They would fill the containers at the top of the pole with about 15 liters of oil. Now, I was trying to figure out 
what that would be like carrying up a ladder 70 feet up, up to this, uh, this oil container. 15 liters is, is a little over half of a five-gallon pail. So if you, you know what a five-gallon pail is, I use them to you know, get water out of the lake off the end of my dock when I need to put those fish in it. And uh, when it's half full or a little more than half full, it's heavy, man. I mean, it's, it's not light. And so they're carrying that much oil on their backs up and filling these up. So the other thing that's interesting is that the wicks of these great lamps, tradition tells us, were made from the old worn out priestly clothes. They would take the old pants and belts that the priest didn't wear anymore, and that's what they would use to, to light the wicks. I don't know why that's significant. I just find it interesting. So it would look something like this. This is kind of a, an artist's rendering of what it would look like all illuminated. And here's an idea. So, so again, according to Jewish tradition, these lamps towered over the court and they shone forth with a light so bright that there was not a single courtyard in all of Jerusalem that was not illuminated by the light of the festival of the water libation. And so now you have a little bit of understanding why Jesus would use light of the world language following the Feast of Tabernacles. And so when the water libation ceremony is happening, the great lamps and the menorahs are lit and illuminating all Jerusalem, Jesus interrupts the festivities and he makes his declaration. And remember, this is commemorating the Israelites' time in the wilderness when they followed what? A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It's imagery. It all, it all connects, okay? And so when Jesus uses light language, he's He's really talking about the fact that he is God, that he's God, synonymous with the presence, the glory of God. And so he says these words in John 8, and the stage is perfectly set for maximum impact, and here's why. Because the tradition of the festival of the, the water libation and the, the lighting of that festival, as I, as I said, it grew in intensity to the very last day of the feast. And on the last and greatest day, that's why John uses that language, on the last and greatest day of the feast. Why was it the greatest day? Well, it's the greatest day because by now, you know, everybody's arrived. You know, anybody who, who's been late coming into Jerusalem, is, they're, they're there. And the expectation level has been growing all throughout these seven days so that on the last day of the feast, and this is the tradition from Solomon's temple, they believe that it's on the last and the greatest day that the glory of God is going to come in incredible power. That's what they're expecting. And there's a little bit of a hint in there for you and I, because if we're not expecting, we might miss. We might miss the glory of God. Anticipation and expectation has a lot to do, I believe, with where God shows up and what God does. Amen? So John 8 and verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And he makes this, this statement right after, right after the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's what's happening in the background. So here's a couple other verses to remember from the Hebrew law and the prophets. Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're very familiar with these references to light in the scriptures. Let's go back all the way to Genesis. God himself was the originator of light. Genesis 1 and Verses three to four, God said, let there be light. And there was light and God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. Then we go to Isaiah chapter nine and verse two. 
says the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has shined. Isaiah 60, 1-3 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises on you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Powerful, powerful words of prophecy about a light that will come. And in saying that he was the light of the world, Jesus was not mincing words, really. He wasn't, you know, we talked about hinting yesterday and that whole Ramez method. Well, he's hinting here, but he's hinting pretty strongly. He is really putting himself on the same plane as his father God. He was stating emphatically that he was the Messiah. That's what he was saying. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Isaiah said, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. The Pharisees in verse 13, they actually challenged Jesus because they said, okay, well, it's easy for you to say, but you're, you're acting as your own witness. How, how is it that you can just sort of make these statements and, and think that we're all going to just believe and accept it? I guess they missed the part, you know, from yesterday where he said that God's seal of approval was on him, that he was the bread of life, that he came down from heaven. They're still, they're still struggling with these truths, right? And so they said, you can't just do that. And Jesus says to them, you know what? You've still not figured it out yet. Look at verse 14 of uh, John 8. He said, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. And I love this. For I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. It's, it's important to know where you came from, but it's, it's ultimately more important to know where you're going. Okay. And he says, you judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. This drives them crazy. This drives them crazy. And uh, you read on, you'll, you'll see that. So Jesus says, he has the, the witness of the Father. And to prove it, and this is what I kind of want to get to before we're done here, to prove that he was the light of the world, he did something just a couple chapters later to illustrate to them, and here's what he did. He healed a man who had been born blind. Okay, it's John chapter 9, 1 to 11. You're probably familiar with the story, but let me uh, just read the text quickly for you. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. By the way, um, he does a little bit more teaching at the temple after the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says in, in the last part of chapter 8, at this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. And so he's moving away from the temple grounds, and somewhere along that journey, he comes across this man blind from birth. His disciples said to him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. We don't like to think that way always, do we? We don't like to think that when we face challenge or we face struggle or we face trial, that maybe this is because the work of God could be displayed in our lives. We tend to jump to, uh, you know, to complaining and pleading with God. And, but, but maybe, just maybe, God has a purpose. And so, 
He says that this is why this man is born blind. As long as it is day, he said, we must do the work of him who sent, or I must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, verse 5, I am the light of the world. So he's back to the light of the world thing. Having said this, he spit on the ground. He made some mud with the salt, saliva and he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. Interesting. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and, and uh, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Amazing, amazing miracle that happens. And the question comes, you know, after Jesus has slipped away from the temple grounds, his disciples come across this man born blind. Jesus says, no, neither one of them sinned. It's because the work of God is going to be displayed in his life. And then he says again in verse 5, as we just noted, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So a few things about what he does next that are very telling regarding his previous claims. So remember, he's, we did the water libation ceremony at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's been illuminated with these great, great lights. Jesus has said, not only, you know, if anybody's thirsty, come to me and drink. You'll never thirst again. He said, I'm the light of the world. And then with the blind man, here's what he does. He, he spits in the dust. We're into the dust again. You know, he's writing in the dust a couple chapters ago. Now he spits in the dust and he makes a little bit of mud with the saliva and he cakes it on the man's eyes. Is that imagery, does that say anything to you? Who, who do you know that works with dust? You know, God is, this is a creative act that Jesus is doing here. God himself made man from the dust of the earth. And now Jesus comes to this man born blind. He spits in the dust. He makes mud and he cakes it on his eyes. Then he does something else. That's powerful imagery right there about creation. But then he does something else. And remember, he wasn't blind because of some accident or degenerative disease over time. He was born blind. And this is extremely, extremely significant. Second, Jesus tells the man, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Well, that's kind of cool. We just talked about the Pool of Siloam. That's where they get the water for the, the water libation ceremony. That's where the priest gets this living water that comes from the, the Gihon Spring in the Jebusite city. And he tells the man, go there and wash. And then it's got in brackets this little, you know, addendum. Siloam means sent. It means sent. Well, that's interesting. So he puts mud on his eyes. He sends him to the Pool of the Sent One to wash his eyes, his blind eyes. And then there's, there's the miracle that happens. And this incredible miracle causes quite a kerfuffle. Nobody can figure out how this man who used to beg on the street and who was blind now can see. And there's, they're arguing among themselves. Is it him? No, I don't think it's him. It just looks like him. But, but he says, no, no, it's me. I'm the man. He didn't say, hey, I'm the man. He just said, no, I'm him. I'm the man. And so here's what takes place. They bring him to the Pharisees to investigate the healing. Why? Why do they do that? Why do they bring them to the Pharisees? We know that, you know, if somebody was, was sick quite often, they would have to come and appear before the priests. But the Pharisees, they're the, they're the teachers of the law. Why bring him to the Pharisees? Well, 
Remember the verse I shared Sunday night? If you were here Sunday night, I, you know, a little bit of a teaser. I talked about, about the things that Jesus told John's disciples. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 5. The disciples of John come to Jesus and they say to him, uh, they say to him, are you the one? You know, John wants to know. John the Baptist wants to know. Are you the one or should we look for another? And Jesus says, Tell him, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now here's what we need to understand. Sometime over the centuries, the, the Jewish leaders, the rabbis had gotten together and they had put miracles into two different categories. Maybe you didn't know this. They put miracles into two different categories. There were miracles that, you know, that, that godly men could perform the prophets, the, the judges, maybe the kings. These are, these are things that we would say, okay, probably a man with God working through him could do these things. But then they had another category, and it was the, the category called the messianic miracles. These are the miracles that only the Messiah will be able to do. How they determined that, I have no idea, but I do know it was part of Jewish tradition and Jesus knew it too, okay? And so there's four things, four messianic miracles that uh, they had determined only the Messiah could perform. One was the healing of a leper. Jesus did that. One was the healing of someone born blind. Jesus is doing that right here in this text. One was raising the dead. And we're going to talk about that on Thursday, I believe. And then another was the casting out of a mute demon. So to ruin the end of the story, Jesus performed all four of these miracles. And it was a powerful, powerful message to the Jewish leaders about who he was. Because they were the ones, and this is what I love, they were the ones that determined these four things would, would be things that only the Messiah could do, okay? So called the Messianic Miracles. So when Jesus, whenever one of these miracles occurred uh, or was thought to have occurred, they would bring the people to the Pharisees because they would have to investigate and see if that really was what was happening, okay? So here's, here's, uh, here's what goes down. So they, they, they think, well, what if it's a fluke? If he wasn't actually born blind, and so they, they call for his parents. Say to him, uh, is this your son? Yeah, this is our son. Was he born blind? Well, yeah, he was, he was born blind. And they're giving him the third degree. They're giving them the third degree and they want to know, you know, uh, really was he born blind? And when they confirm it, well, they go back then to the, to the man and they say to him, you know, why, and here's what I want to ask. Why the third degree? Isn't there enough evidence? Isn't the evidence of the fact that the man can see now enough? Like he's seeing. You know, how many fingers? Four. Okay, they work. It's good. You can see. So, so they know he's seeing now, but they wanted to understand uh, whether or not it was one of these messianic miracles. And so they're intent on getting to the bottom of it. They go to the parents. They go back to the man, and they grill the man who was healed, and then they grill his parents again. They're evasive in their answers. The parents don't want to really answer because they know that uh, the Pharisees have started to kick people out of the synagogue who believe in Jesus. This is what they're worried about, right? So they're a little bit evasive in their answers. They go back to the man. And here's what happens in John 9, uh, 24 to 34. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they say, by telling the truth. 
It's okay, I can do that. We know this man is a sinner. And he replied, whether he is a sinner, and they're referring to Jesus, by the way, we know that Jesus is a sinner. Whether he's a sinner or not, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. This is what the man says. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I can see. How many of you know that, that you can't argue with someone's testimony? You can't argue with someone's story, right? I went to church on Sunday and we had a lady named Annie, Annie Lobert there who uh, runs a ministry that I think the name is ridiculous, but anyway, it's called Hookers for Jesus. And she was saved out of the, the sex industry in Las Vegas. She got up there and she got to talk and, you know, I'm a pastor. So, so when I go to church, I tend to be a little bit too critical most of the time. I'm there thinking, uh, you know, oh, I would have said that different. Or, and I know it's terrible. It's a disease, and I, I confess it to you right now. I, it's a problem. But that's what I do. Or I look at, you know, the screens and think, man, they should have been placed just a little bit over to the left. And, and the sound is a little... I, I do that. So anyway, she's up there talking, and the whole time I'm thinking... Man, you know, public speaking, not really her thing. The story's a little hokey, and she's, you know, I'm doing that whole critical thing. But she gets to the end of her story, and she talks about the moment when God delivers her from this life of sin. And I'm a mess. I'm like, I'm, I'm emotional, I'm crying. My wife's like, what's wrong with you? And I'm just like, I can't help it. It's, this is the transforming power of Jesus Christ, and it's her story. I can't argue with that. Doesn't matter how well she presents it. It's her story. So don't ever, don't ever uh, you know, underestimate the power of your story. And the man says, one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And I love what he says. He's like, listen, I've told you already. Weren't you listening? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> oh, that did not go well. That did not go well. They touched a nerve. And they start, the Pharisees start hurling insults at him. You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. See what they go back to right away? They go back to Jewish tradition, to Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And I love the man's answer. Now that is remarkable, he says. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. He performed the messianic miracle, the one, the one that you guys laid down the, you know, the requirements for. It was your idea. And so the man says, we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does as well. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. Now, how dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. I love that. It's like when we get challenged and we don't know what else to say, we revert to childhood. You remember? I know you are, but what am I? I know you are, but what am I? We, we, get, we get this sort of knee-jerk response. And so they get angry, they have a tantrum, and uh, then Jesus uh, is, this story is there. He brings light into this man's darkness in a very, very powerful way. When he told the disciples of John to go back and tell John that these miracles were happening, he was giving them, he was giving them affirmation that he was indeed the one, the Messiah. But now, in healing the man who was born blind, he gave them confirmation. He gave them confirmation. He didn't just say, I'm the one, I'm the light of the world. He proved it by bringing light into this man's utter darkness, a man whose world had known nothing but inky black darkness from birth. 
now he can see. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? Imagine what it means to know only darkness and then experience light. I can imagine that. Can you remember when your life was only darkness? Can you remember life before the light of Jesus? That's what this man had experienced. And some of you have powerful stories of transformation. Maybe, you know, not as, maybe not as dramatic as Annie Lobert from Las Vegas, but, but God's done incredible things in your lives. And so we ask the question at the end here today, what's the call to action? What is the call to action? What are we to do with this? It's a great story, but what does it have to do with me? And here's what Jesus said. I want you to go back to, to verse five of chapter nine. He said to the disciples, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That's interesting. What's significant about that? Is Jesus still in the world? Well, by his presence he is, but, but how is he in the world now by his presence? Today he's in the world, uh, he, he lives in the church, and he's expressed through the, the Holy Spirit. And so, if he's in the church, who's the light of the world now? We are. You are. I am. Now, let's get something straight. You on your own, you have no light in you. Only darkness until you have the light of Jesus come into your life. John said in John chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The light that shines in darkness, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And the true light comes from, actually the true light is Jesus. He says, I'm the light of the world. Matthew 5, 14 to 16 though, he is uh, giving the Sermon on the Mount on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and he says to them who are listening, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, you let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This picture is uh, what we believe is the city on a hill that Jesus was referring to there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. It's called Safed. And it's there right on the edge of the sea. That's the sea in the foreground. The city is way up in the top of that, of that hill at an elevation of about 900 meters. It's the highest uh, community in the land of Israel as far as elevation goes. And when Jesus says, you're the light of the world, he's actually pointing to this city. He's saying, a city that's set on a hill, that can't be hidden. There's no, there's no getting around that. You can see that, right? That's what he's saying to them. You are the light of the world. So no pressure, right? No pressure. Uh, somebody named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said this, people are like stained glass windows. They sparkle and shine when the sun is out, but when the darkness sets in, their true beauty is revealed only if there is a light from within. We are the light when Christ is in us. And when we have his light in us, we can't hide it. Let your light shine. The things that will dim or obstruct the light of Christ in us is our sin and our doubts and our fears. And I want to just tell you one story and then I'm done because this is what happens when you let your light shine. Last November, I was in a town in northern Israel, uh, not this one that's on the screen, but uh, we were there and I was meeting with a, an Arab leader that uh, runs a congregation there called the House of Light, oddly enough. That's what they've named their, their group, their congregation, their ministry. And he started to share the story with me about a woman who came to their group and she was, she was uh, 
gloriously saved, but she lived in a home where her husband was a drug dealer. Many of his brothers and, uh, and nephews were drug dealers as well. It was kind of a little bit of a, you know, northern Israel sort of mafioso that was going on and was being run out of her house. Her husband was violent. He was abusive. He was alcoholic. He, uh, he harmed her physically, and she feared for the safety of her children. And she would come to a niece over and over again and say, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And, and, you got to understand, it's a very conservative Christian environment, but they prayed. Him and his wife, Noel, they prayed and said, what are we doing? And they felt like God said to them, you have to help her leave this man. And it was dangerous. You know, it was, it was very dramatic. But that's what they did. They rented her a home up the street from their house. And they moved her and her children into that home People in the community were up in arms. They were angry. How could you do this? How could you help her leave her husband? Even people, believers in the congregation got upset about this because, you know, uh, Jesus is not for divorce and, and for separation of husband and wife. And, but her, her safety was, was at risk here. Long story short, they helped her with groceries and food. They helped the kids with clothing for a little while. They found this woman a job. She began to work and support her kids. They came to the congregation. The children, the sh children got saved as well, and they began to grow up. And, and today, today the oldest son has studied and successfully become a medical doctor. The next daughter, the next youngest, uh, is a nurse, and now is studying to get a master's so that she can teach as well. The third child, he, you know, Anise noticed, he, he said he's not really good with books and with schooling. He was struggling in school. And so Anise thought he's great with his hands. And so he had a friend who was an auto mechanic. He took him over, began to apprentice this young kid. And now he's a, a proficient auto mechanic and earning a living. And, and, uh, and the last uh, daughter, the youngest, is, uh, has just finished high school and is preparing to go, to go off into her future. Isn't that an amazing story? I love the powerful, uh, the power of, of the transformation that happens when light comes into darkness, don't you? Now, if that was the end of the story, I think that would be a pretty great story. But he sat across his kitchen table from me and he said, the most amazing thing happened last Saturday. He said, there was a knock on my door. He said, I went and I kind of peeked out through the, the sidelight and he said, this man, this big, burly, drug dealer man was standing on my front porch and he said, I was, I was afraid. I didn't know, you know, this man had threatened me. He had cursed me. He had called me all kinds of names. He had threatened me physically, told me he was going to kill me. He said, I didn't know if I should open the door or not. But he said, somehow I, you know, I gathered the courage. I opened it up. I went out, stuck my hand out to shake his hand. And, and he said, the man stood on my porch and he said, this big, burly drug dealer stood there and, <laughs> sorry, the big tears began to roll down his face. And he said, I know that you're probably afraid of me. I know that I have not been your biggest fan. But he said, I just, he said, I am just so amazed at what has happened with my family. He said, I just, I came to say thank you. Thank you for what you did to help my wife get away from me and, and my influence. He said, he said, I don't understand it all. He said, I don't really know what's going on. But he said, I know, that, I know that there's something here that has helped my family to become who they are today. And he said, I just came to say thank you. Well, I was a mess sitting at his table that morning when he told me that story. And, 
And I wish I could tell you that that man has since come to faith in, in Yeshua, Messiah, but still he has not. But will you pray for him? Because light is coming into his darkness. Light is coming into his darkness. And people, there are people are all around you who are living in that same inky blackness as the man born blind. And you, you are the light of the world. Amen? Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for, Lord, just the, the powerful transformation of, of the power of your Holy Spirit and the light of, of the world that you are in us. And I pray, oh God, pray God that you will just have reminded us again today of the importance of bringing light into the darkness of our world. Lord, I pray that you will settle those thoughts in our heart, that God, you will help us not just to hear them, but to, to act on them. And we thank you for that today. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. I hope that you found that teaching interesting, even inspiring. You know, we are to be lights in this world. And I want to encourage you, if uh, you'd like to help us be a light in the land of Israel, we are working with so many wonderful organizations and ministries there who are bringing the light of Jesus to that uh, part of the world. And so we encourage you, if you want to help us, you can find out more about the ministry at our website, firstcenturyfoundations.com. That's firstcenturyfoundations with an S.com. And uh, you can give, you can help to support many of these ministries. Uh, we are helping with humanitarian aid and widows and orphans, ministry to children, uh, kids with disabilities, so many wonderful things that uh, First Century Foundations is able to partner on in the land of Israel. And so go to our website, click on donate, whether you're in Canada or the U.S., we can receipt you for your donation. And we just appreciate your help so very much. Again, thanks for tuning in today. And remember, as Christians, we stand with Israel.